Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 22. Let's open in prayer. Father, we pause, we stop. We choose to wait before you, choose to listen and and hear you speak. Because we need your words of truth, your words of life, that you would guide our steps, that you would impart to us that knowledge, that understanding, that we would learn what it means to walk in that straight and narrow path that leads to life, and how our lives can glorify you, and how we can walk in peace and joy, no matter what's going on around us. So this morning, Lead us, Lord. Fill us with your Spirit. Magnify your Son in our lives, our minds, and our hearts. And all God's people said, Amen. As we come to the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians, we find that Paul gives some final exhortations. And in verse 12, he begins, he begins with being respectful to your leaders. Look with me in verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work and live in peace with one another. Paul begins with this exhortation that they would be respectful. They would appreciate those that he is placed in leadership. Now, he begins with that word request, which means to ask, entreat, beg, or even beseech. He speaks of asking and treating them in the sense of urgency, since there's a verb in the in the present active sense. It's an ongoing thing. And it meant that Paul kept making the same request of the Thessalonians over and over again. It reminds us how Easy it is to forget that those that God has put over us, whether it be in our own government and we're to pray for our leaders and and so easily we can forget that or pray for our parents, pray for our bosses in our workplaces. But here Paul's talking about even more than that. Those that he has put over us that are watching over our spiritual walk, those that are going to be accountable for us one day. See, it's apparently necessary because the church members um, have short memory concerning their worth and the work of their pastor. See, the church of Thessalonica was blessed to have responsible pastors, elders. They were requested by Paul to treat them with responsibility, but in honor and respect. People tend to be fickle. One day they love you, the next day they don't. They hear a rumor about something that they shouldn't even listen to, and all of a sudden they don't like you. They begin to look down upon you. But we must remember it's it's God that raises up. It's God that brings them down. It's the Holy Spirit is the one who qualifies. He's the one that calls people to these roles of leadership. 
In fact, Acts 8.28 reminds us that Paul was talking about that very principle. He knew that he wasn't going to see them again. He was saying that God had entrusted him. God had put him in that position. And it's because of that that God has given this leadership, that, that we are to remember them, to be respectful toward them. Now, this God-given leadership consists of pastors, elders, and deacons. Now, pastors and elders oftentimes seem to be connected together in the scripture. Now, an elder is a pastor. A pastor is an elder. A pastor is not only an elder, he is a, he's a bishop, he is an overseer. And those terms, elder, overseer, bishop, tend to give a job description of what type of pastor is he? What is he doing? What is his responsibility? Now, remember that responsibility is to God, and he will be accountable for that. And that responsibility also is to the people, because he's put in that place by God. So we have pastor elders, okay, and then we have deacons. Now, deacons are those with a hands-on ministry, Those are the ones that you find in Acts chapter 6 that are are waiting on tables. They have a servant's heart. They have a love for the people. They're ministering. Now, the difference is between a deacon and an elder, while we're all called to be spiritual, is elders are the men, spiritual men, the leadership. Deacons are those practical ministries that they do. Sadly, which the Bible does not teach, sometimes deacons run the church when elders are supposed to be the spiritual leaders watching over the flock of God. They're going to give accountability to God for those things that they've said and those things that are done. Pastors and elders in the scripture again and again, you see are men represented by men. That's the position God has called. It doesn't mean a man is any better than a woman. That's just what God has called what God has dictated. Deacons, though, in contrast, these are godly men, but they're also godly women. We find in the book of Romans, there are women called deaconesses. They can serve in many ministries, the ministry of, of, of children and greeting and loving and, and, and preparing and cleaning. They can even teach when it's over other women in women's ministry as well. Or again, as I mentioned earlier, younger children. Now, the pastor and elder, those are spiritual leaders. Those are the ones that are to teach, the oversee the flock of God. So there is a distinction between them. It doesn't mean an elder is any better than a deacon. It just means he has a different job description and a different calling, and God has prepared him differently. Now, the pastor, however, must lead the flock as God directs him. This is what we call a theocracy. That, that the church is to be led by God. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and we are the body. So again, this pastor, this, these elders, are just another part of the body, just as the deacons are another part of the body. And God has raised up men to be these elders, these pastors, and deacons and deaconesses to watch over, to minister to this flock of God. And while you're ministering and I'm ministering, that is the deacons and the pastors, we are worshiping God. We are serving God. We are honoring God. It is a worship. 
and is the way that we give ourselves to God. Now, as the pastor leads that flock, he must diligently, the scripture makes clear, labor among them. Now, that word labor, diligent labor, it points to that fact that there's a point of exhaustion. And it's work. It's work. It, there, there's a spiritual work. With, and I know what I'm teaching and what I'm done. I, I feel if something is gone, there's a, a spiritual energy. I do not understand. Every pastor I've ever talked about says the same thing. They feel drained from one hour. One hour teaching the Word of God because there's a spiritual battle going on in our minds, around us. So it is a work. But at times, uh, they diligently labor physically, mentally, and emotionally. Now, the idea is it is a work, and they are to have charge over the flock of God as God's will. Now, I mentioned earlier, Acts 20, verse 28, let me read to you. Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock, and among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and shepherd the church of God, which he's purchased with his own blood. So these pastors is what it's talking about. These elders, that's who he's meeting with, Paul. To guard, guard for yourselves. You've got to watch their own life and for the flock of God. This is the responsibility given. They're going to, and we're going to see later, give account for their actions, their attitudes. God will. We don't need to judge a pastor or elder. If there's sin in their life, yes, it must be dealt with. Yes, they must have to be stepped down. But we never judge in the way that God would judge. Notice again in that verse, it's the Holy Spirit that made them overseers. That's the responsibility of God. Here in America, oftentimes, we have another God that we worship. It's the God of our own rights. It's the God of self. And that's not what the Bible teaches here. The Bible teaches that God is the one that selects. It's not that we vote the most popular person in like we would do as Democrats and Republicans for our, our, our government. No, we're looking, all we ever look for is the calling of God. Has God called this individual? And then when one is ordained, we're just acknowledging what God has done. Now, God is the one responsible for calling that person, no matter what you and I ever think. Then that person is to shepherd the church, to watch over him, led by God to lead those sheep. And it's the ones that he's purchased with his own blood. So they're not to lord over them, but to oversee that flock of God. First Peter 5 talks about that. And they are to stand before the flock of God, leading them in the way of righteousness, first by example, and then at work. Verse 12 says, and to give you instruction. They are to instruct the believer in the truths of God's word. Not their opinions, not in politics, but in the truth of God's word. They are to teach, again, the whole counsel of God's word. Not to go where they want, but to teach the whole, complete counsel. To give the body of Christ the whole word of God in its context 
in the big picture what God has for the body of Christ, what God has for you as a husband, what God has for you as a wife, and to deal with it as God deals with it, in the frequency he deals with it, so it's never my hobby horse or any pastor's hobby horse. That's why we go through the Bible, verse by verse, the whole counsel of God's word. If a person stays in the word long enough, he will know the word of God and he will be able to instruct others in the word of God. Look at verse 13 for a second. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. So what they're to do is to accept them. They are God's gift to the church. Now, pastors and elders, can that can go to their head. But in a reality is God has given them to the church to benefit the church, to be those instruments that God moves through. And the pastor elder has to be careful. It doesn't go to their head to think it's them because it's always the Holy Spirit working through the vessel that has given himself to the Lord. The second thing is that they're to appreciate them. That is the meaning of the exhortation, to know them which labor among you. How can you appreciate them if you don't know who's laboring? You you see what they're doing. You see that they're laying down their life. They're giving of themselves. They're giving their own time up to minister to, that they really do love. They really do care that you're seeing the love of God in them. Well, how do you show that appreciation? Love them. Love them as brothers, as as the leaders are among, as leaders who are watching over us in the Lord. So love them, to show that affection to them, to thank God for them, to pray for them. Well, another way that you can esteem them very highly in love, and it's because of the work, because you see them, you accept them, you appreciate them, well, you need to follow them. You need to obey them. I remember Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ. See, when you see a leader following Christ, when you see a leader holding on to the word, walking in that word, standing before you, bringing the word day in and day out. Now, these aren't perfect people because we're not perfect but they really want to do the right thing. You know what love does? It covers a multitude of sin. If if your pastor or one of the elders seems to be a little impatient or a little unkind, but normally they're always patient. They listen. They care. They take time with you. You need to follow. You need to obey. Because when you do that, you're submitting to the Lord and God will bless you and God will bless them, and God will bring you both down that right path. Look at Hebrews on the screen. Chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, and 17, I'll read. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, 
not by foods through which those who so occupied were not benefited. So what he's teaching is, you know, is the very word of God that that we are to follow them, imitate their faith, and recognize that the, the true pastor will not introduce strange teachings, will not introduce things that will bring you away from the simplicity of the word of God, but the very teaching will strengthen your heart and strengthen by grace, not by do, 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 rules and regulations, but introducing you to the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, because when you fall in love with God, you want to follow him. When you recognize God has set a pastor over you, if you're in God's will, you'll recognize that God is giving you that pastor and you'll want to follow him as he follows Christ. Let's go on to verse 17 in, in Hebrews there. It says, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over their souls and will give account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Well, first of all, the, the pastor, the elders, the spiritual leaders, they're to, to watch over your souls. The pastor and elder is going to give account for his actions toward the flock of God. Did they bring the word of God? Did they point you to Jesus? Did they live that life themselves or did they live a hypocritical life? What, do you, what is our response? Obey. Obey those leaders. Submit to them. And that submission really is when they bring the word of God to you, you just submit to the word of God. And when you do that, when you submit to your leader, when you submit to the word of God, you're submitting to God. Now, it's important that you are to let them do this as they bring you the word of God, as they counsel you with the word of God, that you are to let them do it with joy, not with grief. There are times that people don't want to hear the word of God. Who are you to judge me? And you come to them in love and tenderness and kindness. And you just simply open the word. And you begin to let them read it and understand it. And, you know, what is this word saying? What do we need to do in this, this context of this passage? And they begin to get angry. The sad thing is they're rejecting not just the pastor or the elder. They're rejecting the very word of God and they are rejecting God himself. When God raises up a pastor or a leader, he has a work to do. We're not to begin to tell them what they are to do. We're not to dictate them. We're not to control them. We need to free them up that they can sit before God in prayer and listen to God. Listen to his heart. Study his word. That's the reason for deacons. Go back to Acts chapter 6. Deacons were chosen out, spiritual people that would watch over, serve the tables, so the apostles could continue in the word of God, continue in the teaching of the word of God and prayer. That's their calling, is that, that spiritual leading. They have nothing to give to you unless they can spend that quiet time with the Lord. Now, when people begin to attack pastors, attack leadership of, of the church, they, again, 
are causing problems. They're causing division. It's very hard for those men, those that are in leadership, to uh, keep a focus. It's a distraction. People in the body of Christ so often are, are used by the devil and they don't even recognize it. They just are so sure they're right. They're blind. They can't see they're wrong. Well, keep in mind, though, that leadership is never to be a dictatorship. First, the leader is to set that example, as I mentioned. And by setting that example, he's paying the price. And he seeks to help others in Christian love. And this is important. The leader that is called by God will set example before you, and it will cost him. Whether it be persecution, whether it be sacrificing personal time for hobbies and things, because he puts the Lord first. He understands his calling, and he has to give every effort to be there. He has to recognize that he needs to prepare to meet with the Lord, but also to prepare to meet with you. And that becomes his, his priority there. So he seeks to help Christians in love. And that's a very important thing for him to realize and for us that we need to free them up to do that type of thing. Well, leaders are to, to recognize, be recognized, not by title. The scripture is very clear, but by their example by the work they do, the dedication to God, the dedication to the people. While a title may be fine, but only if the title is true. If the title describes what the person really is before God and man. The title describes his or her calling. A, a pastor is one who watches over that flock of God or the elder is the one who is that mature one watching over that flock of God or the deacon or deaconesses who is the one that's serving the people. Look back at verse 12 again and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. See, their responsibility is in the Lord and they're to give you instruction. Instruction is not their opinions, but what does the word of God say? He's not a, a dictator to be controlling and manipulating. He's to lead, as we said, by example, but not driving. I say that because, you know, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. If you would go to Israel, they have what's called these fat tailed sheep. And it's there, primarily the only places in the world, there's a few places where they brought them, but where the sheep literally follow the shepherd. Every place else in the world, sheep are kind of driven like they do cattle, but there the sheep follows. The sheep are to understand who their leader is and follow him. That's why Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. He was following Christ and that the people would follow. And that should be true of your leader. Wherever you're going, that he should be a man who is following God. You should see that there's evidence in his life. Not selfishly for himself. His motives should be pure. He's following God. He's, he's wanting to be everything God would have him be. He's not to be selfish. He is to watch over the flock of God. Well, look with me in verse 14. It says that we are to be mindful of one another. We urge you, brother, to admonish the unruly. 
encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek after what is good for one another, for all people. This is very important. No one likes confrontation. Well, I know there are some that do, but for the most part, no one likes confrontation. Sometimes we'll turn our back. We'll avoid a situation. Oh, it'll work out. Oh, look, I survived. And we know somebody's walking in sin, walking down that wrong path. We have to remember that the church not only is the body of Christ, it is the family of God. And as a family, we have a responsibility to one another. We have a responsibility to point one another to Christ, to encourage one another, even to provoke one another onto good works. So we need to see ourselves with this family partnership. Just as a family has a business that needs to be taken care of, that is family business. So it is true with the family of Christ. Family members must learn to minister to one another. It's so important. There are people within this body at every congregation, wherever they be, that are mature, they're loving. People look to, they respect, they see them following Christ. And these people, whether it be men or women, are then to be responsible to those around. If you love one and someone and you see them in need, and I'm not just talking about financially, here to go and minister to them. Let me read Titus. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, it's up on the screen. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so the word of God will not be dishonor. See, these older women, not referring necessarily just to age, but those that are mature, first, their character must be right. They must be reverent in their own behavior and not malicious gossips, as it says, but they're to be teaching what is good, encouraging the younger women how love their husbands, love their children. And this is important. They are to come and take those younger ones under their wings and nurture them, help them become everything that God would have them be, help them blossom in Christ. Now, the pastor's responsibility, the elder's responsibility, the the leaders of the church, those spiritual leaders, according to Ephesians 4.12, is that they're supposed to equip the saints, equip the members to do the work of the ministry. See, it's not just the pastor's responsibility. It's not just the uh, leader's responsibility, the elders. It's everyone's responsibility to minister to one another. Now, there's ways that we minister. We minister in love and kindness and tenderness, but we have that responsibility. And if we don't, We're not showing our true worship. We're not showing our true love 
for Jesus Christ himself. Now, maybe you say, well, I don't know if I'm mature enough. Well, maybe someone needs to take you under their wing and nurture them. Maybe you need to, to find someone in the fellowship and, and put yourself under them. If it's a woman, under another woman. If it's a man, under a man. And help them grow. And that goal is what we call discipleship. The goal is to make you a disciple. And then one day that you then can disciple someone else. That's always the goal of discipleship is to help a person grow and mature that they would go out and they too would make disciples. Disciples not of you, but disciples of Christ. Teach them how to pray as you pray. Teach them how to study the word and feed themselves that they might go out and feed someone else and teach them how to do that. Well, it means if we're in this position, sometimes it's admonishing the unruly. Oh, that's the ones that we want to avoid. Someone else can do it. The pastor needs to do it. No, if you see someone that is unruly, you have to go to them in love and tenderness. Now, not every time someone says something, but if you see a person in a habitual lifestyle, you see someone abusing verbally his wife and no one else sees it, you need to go as another brother. You need to sit down with them because you love them. You need to point them to Jesus. And it's so important because if you don't do that, you are in sin. And if it's a woman, you see a situation, you need to go to them. You need to be a friend to them. You need to be a sister to them. You need to ask God to show you how to speak to them in tenderness and love. And sometimes we have to go to them quickly when they're hurtful. We need to deal with it right away when a person has that nature. It's best to identify first the, the group here at First Thessalonians 5.14 so we understand the context. So the context is rebellious idlers. These are members in the church who are not merely lazy or obstinate, but they refuse to submit to authority and leaders and apostles. If you see someone in the, in the fellowship that not just be lazy, but they won't submit to the authority. They're not submitting to the word. They're talking and backbiting. You need to go to them. You need to go to them in love. Matthew 18 makes it very clear how you to go to them. You go to them individually, and, and if they don't respond to that, you go with another person, and you go to them. And, and finally, if they do not respond to that other brother or sister you bring with them, you bring it to the church. You bring it to the leadership. It must be dealt with. God hates a divisive spirit. You cannot allow them to remain in your congregation wherever you're at. A little sin, a little leaven, leavens the lump. When there's sin in the camp, it will affect the camp. It's only a matter of time. It must be dealt with. But that doesn't mean that every time that someone does a little thing wrong that we're going to go to them. No, no, we're talking about something that is very strong, something that is very rebellious, something that's going to affect their destiny and affect the body of Christ. Notice what Matthew 5.39 says, But I say to you, do not 
resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Sometimes there's a, a time that we do need to turn away. It's a minor. They're, they're going through something difficult. It's not their normal uh, demeanor. Sometimes we just have to let things go and not call attention to ourselves. Let the Holy Spirit deal with it. And I've done it that way, and, and people come back and say, you know, I, I'm so sorry. I was in pain. Or, you know, they just lost a loved one. And they weren't dealing with things. So we have to be careful when we go. But when we go, when you prayed, when you first examined your own heart, why is it you want to go? Then you can go in love, in tenderness and kindness to them. Look again at First Thessalonians 4.11. We are to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, work with your hands just as we've commanded you. So normally we're to live a quiet life and help one another live that quiet life. Though there is a responsibility, there's a way to live, but there's still a time when we deal with sin. If you do not deal with sin quickly, you do not deal with your kids when they're young, it will come back to haunt you. So often parents that do not discipline their kids when they're young, their kids go on in life in rebellious and anger and even sometimes breaking law after law and even ending up in jail. You got to deal with it quickly. The consequences not only are, are the moment, but they can be eternal. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. Not according to the tradition which you have received from us. And now it's important to understand that there are people that are just going to live a sinful lifestyle. They profess to be believers, but they do not possess that relationship. It's evident in their life because they're living an unruly life. Now, Paul's saying, not according to the tradition. What does he mean, tradition? Not the tradition of the church, but the things that he taught to them which you receive from us, how to deal with people in that circumstance. Well, that's the point. We don't want to deal with people. We just want to turn our cheek all the time, uh, turn our head. We want to avoid it. And that person perpetually gets worse. I've seen it. It does get worse if not dealt with. Well, also that person that means you and me and every believer. We're to encourage the faint-hearted. There are people in every congregation that just need courage. They're depressed by fear, easily discouraged or frightened, sometimes cowardly, dejected. They need to be assured of God's love, knowing God's acceptance knowing they're kept by the, the power of God, knowing that that eternal life is in Christ Jesus. Just as First John mentions, this book was written. One of the reasons he wrote it, he says, is that you might know that you have eternal life and that eternal life is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very common that a lot of, a lot of people that are going to church don't know if they're ever going to be good enough to go to heaven. It's not based upon how good you are. It's based upon your relationship. 
and faith in Jesus Christ. For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, lest any man boast. So we need to be encouragers. Well, the third thing he says also in that verse is that we need to help the weak. Well, this can refer to those spiritually weak who lack that maturity. Certainly we need to help them, help them grow. Who must be supported until they can walk on their own. I think of our uh, young kids when they were young. We would help them grow physically strong, help them learn to do things. I remember when helping my kids learn to ride the bike. And one of the ways we did is we had training wheels in the very beginning that they would be on that bike. And, and we're kind of like those training wheels to help them learn. But eventually those training wheels have to come off. Help them to stand on their own feet. Now, this may talk about those who are spiritually weak, but it also uh, speaks of those who suffer with emotional, even physical difficulties, how we need to, to love them, accept them, minister to them. Not make them feel uncomfortable. Let them know that God can still use them, encourage them, and help them grow. Not because we feel good when we do these things, but because of love. The love of God. He's poured his love into our hearts, so naturally love will move us to reach out. Maybe we say, oh, I, I don't want to be around people like that. I don't feel comfortable. It bothers me. Then what we need to do is pray, God, give me a love that ministers to everyone, no matter what that circumstance is. Remove me of those things, reaching out to those people that you put in my life that you want to use me with. We need to help the weak, no matter how they are weak. Well, the fourth thing that I see is be patient with everyone. Boy, that is probably the hardest one. There are those that, who are different. They are hard to be around. They try your patience, and this demands the fruit of the Spirit you can find that fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22 and follow through. But it requires that you be in the Spirit. Well, we need to be in the Spirit in all of those cases, but especially here because they try us. There's a great demand. They're not only unruly, they seem evil. They seem mean. They seem nasty. They're going to lie, cheat, and steal about you. But we need to be patient. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us this, that love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It is not arrogant. See, we need to meet them with love. That love that I'm talking about is sacrificial love. It means that I have to deny myself. I need to lavish him with the love. Love covers a multitude of sin. It recognizes that God has put you there and allowed you to see something because he wants to stretch you, grow you, mature you. Even though you may think you're mature, none of us have arrived. 
Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. There's the model that we follow. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He entrusted him to the God. He wouldn't lash out. It takes a lot when people are attacking you, lying about you, condemning you, finding fault with you, to stand there and not throw sticks and stones back. To be patient, kind. And at maybe some point we need to step away, walk away. And let that person be dealt with by the Holy Spirit. Or deal with them in a time when, when it's quiet and no one else is around. See, when we choose to to act as Jesus, the world is watching. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not for me to, to go and crush and destroy that person. It's not for you or me to say, enough is enough and I'm going to end this now. That is the flesh. We're to be patient with all people, whether it be in the church or in the world whether they share our values or not. Because they need to see Jesus in our lives. They need Jesus. There will be a point that you and I can say words of wisdom, but may it be from God at that right time. I love the story of the woman who was caught in the midst of adultery, and I'm not going to go through the whole story, but what I want to communicate to you is Jesus never condemned her. But he acknowledged her sin. He says, go and sin no more. Lovingly, kindly, patiently. He dealt with the hypocrites that brought her to him. And he dealt with her. We need to deal with one another in love and patience and kindness. Look with me at verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, you know, the thought here is thankful. <laughs> we got to be patient with everyone. And, and it just begins, rejoice always. He's not flippant. This sounds like ordinary admonitions, but when you add the adverbs, it's a real challenge. Notice again at those words, rejoice always. All times is what he's saying. Pray without ceasing. It's that attitude of prayer going through life. It's prayer. In everything, give thanks. Now you're going to say, just as I have thought in my own mind, well, how can I rejoice at everything? How can I pray without ceasing all the time, 24 hours a day? Certainly I can't give thanks on everything. My response is when I'm that way, I'm in the flesh, not the spirit. 
See, when it says rejoice always, joy is not something that, that I need to muster up, make up. But we walk in the joy. We walk in the joy of Jesus. Now, some will be more expressive and some will not be as expressive, but there's a joy that just radiates from their life. That person who walks in joy can deal with people, can be patient with everyone. He's the person that can help the weak, encourage the faint-hearted. He's the person that can admonish the unruly when necessary because he knows that God is in control. and He knows that God's put him in that place. In fact, as any one of us can do these things, in a sense, these are commands to us. And if we recognize that we are in Christ, we recognize we are new creatures. And old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. We have that ability because we have the Spirit of God indwelling in us. We have his love that he's poured in our hearts that we can draw from. We recognize the best is yet to come, that we're going to be with the king one day. In fact, that is the very reason why we pray without ceasing. Not in that constant mumbling of mindless prayers, vain repetition. No, no, the Christian who is walking in communion with God will see many reasons for rejoicing and thanksgiving. <laughs> Sometimes even those thoughts may seem very foolish at times. But when you begin to look around, there is much to thank God for. It's interesting, years ago, I heard Alan Redpath tell an amusing story and it had a great spiritual emphasis. He describes a friend of his first seems to have read this very verse in the morning devotions. He decided to put it into practice and starting that very morning, he would give thanks for everything, literally. He was leaving Mobile, Alabama by a Greyhound bus that morning on an all-day trip. It was one of those hot and humid and miserable summer days. It was back before there was air conditioning. It was common in buses or cars. The man arrived early to the bus station in good time and secured himself a seat by the window. And he thanked God for the window seat. Lord, thank you. It's going to be a hot trip, but at least I can get some breeze. The bus began to fill up quickly. However, the seat next to him remained vacant. And he said, thank you, Lord. It's going to be a hot trip, but at least I will have some room to spread out. The driver took his place, started the bus, closed the door. And he said, thank you, Lord. And he says, you kept the seat behind me, the one next to me empty. And just as the bus was about to pull away from the terminal, however, someone banged upon the door. It was a late-arriving passenger, a very large woman towing behind her, a, a small little boy. She clambered aboard, pouring with perspiration, glowing with the heat like a furnace. She came down the aisle of the bus, passed a number of empty seats, and flopped heavily down in the seat beside this man. She was quite unable to limit her bulk to the lot space. 
the overflow pressed hot, heavy against the dismayed, disappointed man. Waves of heat, strong odor from the perspiration engulfed him. The woman hauled her little boy upon her lap, and he began to howl and kick his feet. The man received his share of flying feet on his legs. The woman slapped the little boy, but it only made him worse. By way of consolation, the, the woman pulled out a pack of cigarettes, lit one, blew out volumes of smoke that added immeasurably to the man's discomfort. The boy settled down. The cigarettes smoldered. The woman fell asleep, and she relaxed her bulk, sagged heavily in the direction of this unfortunate man, who was now so hard-pressed against the side of the bus he could hardly breathe. Tentative shoves moved that he was hopelessly trapped. He sat there in growing misery. His, his temperature was rising. His limbs were cramped. His senses assailed with smoke and body odor. And then he thought of the morning text. In everything, give thanks, for it is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And he said, Lord, what is there in this situation for which I can be thankful? He waited, and it flashed in his mind. You can be thankful that you're not married to her. <laughs> Sometimes it's these kind of things that we're so thankful for. But God's given you another day to live for him. Another day to glorify him. Another day to tell others about Jesus. About the God who gave himself for you and me. We have so much to be thankful for. See, the key is, first, recognizing those things. Second, we see an illustration of Jesus when Jesus was found himself pressured by the thronging of the crowds, everybody reaching out. He drew himself into the wilderness and he prayed. That's what we need to do. The pressure is on. Things seem to be unbearable. How can we be thankful? We run into the arms of Jesus. See, we need to be careful in worship as well. Paul now shifts from the personal life really to a communal, congregational worship. Verse 19 makes it clear, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise a prophetic utterance. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Prophesying in that early church was the immediate work of the Spirit. The, the prophet would give a, a message from God. So when he says quench... It applies to putting out a flame of some sort, putting out a, a fire or a lamp. This is the only place in the New Testament where this is even used in a, a, a metamorphical sense. The phrase actually could mean more literally translated as stop putting out the Spirit's fire. See, there were false prophets, false teachers 
There were those who were standing up as if the whole congregation was standing and speaking at once. And he says, do not quench. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. And sometimes that's what the body of Christ does is they're putting out the fire of God. God's wanting to speak. It needs to be done in decent order. When, when everyone is firing off at one time, that is not glorifying God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, you can read it. There's a limit how many can speak at a time. There's a place that this needs to be done. But what had happened in verse 20 tells us, do not despise these prophetic utterances. It's telling us that some of these things were of God. So many today are, 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 are fearful. They're fearful because they've seen the abuses. And he said, even if you see the abuses, do not quench the spirit. So there's a place, there's a time that needs to be done. These things need to be examined very carefully. Hold fast to what is good. Obviously, if it's not good, you spit it out. It must be dealt with. See, we need to recognize that the Lord speaks to us. He not only speaks through his word, he speaks through people today. We need to learn to listen and be open for his voice. That's so important. Now, when God is speaking, he will never contradict his word. This is one of the ways that we'll examine and test it is, is it has to line up with the word. It will edify the body. It will exhort the body to do that right thing, and it will bring comfort. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 14, that principle. But we're not to quench, not to put out that fire, not to despise that prophetic utterance. To, to allow it in a decent, orderly way, as 1 Corinthians 14 says, have a place for it. Examine it carefully. Why? Because Satan is the counterfeiter. So it is necessary to test these messages. First Corinthians, let me show you. Chapter 14, verses 29 through 33. Now, this is in the congregation of the saints. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that you may learn and be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, what most scholars, conservative scholars, believe that this prophecy it was talking about is not necessarily future tense, it could be, but is the speaking of word of God, speaking that we walk in the truth, magnifying Jesus Christ. It was in the, the context of, of teaching. Now, notice it says in verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. We, we don't have the office of prophets today. While every person God can speak through and we can prophesy, but we don't have the office of prophets. At that time, they still had these prophets. At that time when, again, the scripture is written, there was no need for prophets anymore. The foundation of our scripture came from, again, the prophets, the apostles, it's written down. 
And now when a person speaks, we, we must test it. Now, any one of us, God can speak through. And I find that God speaks through each and every person. I may be greeting someone and I'll hear God speaking, whether it be in the conversation or maybe a conversation right next to me. God is almost like he takes a highlighter, highlights it. Did you hear what I'm saying? So we have to be careful. Now, it must be tested unless it's 100% from God. It's not from God. That prophet is not from God. So the danger then was that believers were going overboard, emotional abuses, to the other extreme, quenching the spirit by rejecting of his revelations. And, and see, they just didn't understand. They weren't equipped completely. There's a gentleman, I can't remember his name right now. He was a, of the assemblies of God. He talks about on, on tongues and uh, he's talking about the, the, the validity of the tongues, but how often tongues are abused. He describes a woman that was going through a fast food restaurant. She came up to order her food on the outside and she just went off in tongues. And she went up to the counter. She drove up and she kind of giggled. Oh, I couldn't help myself. And that's not true. Because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. See, people abuse the Scripture. Sometimes they've just never been taught. Again, that older brother, that older uh, woman needs to come alongside and help people to learn how to use these gifts. At the same time, we're to examine everything carefully, as verse 21 says. Hold fast to what is good. I've heard God speak from time to time very clearly. This is what we are to do. It does not conflict the word of God. It doesn't glorify man. It only glorifies God. It's very possible that prophecy, again, in this church, as I said, is being despised because the individuals are abusing the gifts. And today there are those that abuse those gifts. Those that are in leadership that uh, allow everyone to speak tongues at once, they're going to be accountable for those choices. Oh, it's not a loss of salvation. But I want to hear those words, good and faithful servant. Isn't that what you want to hear? Well, there were idlers among the Thessalonians perhaps again, who spiritualized their idleness with prophecy. Some were setting dates or date setters or end time speculators about Thessalonians. We'll see that as we get into Second Thessalonians, especially chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Perhaps they, they, they back these up, the speculations, you know, with their own prophecies they worked up. And, and, you know, there are those today that said the end justifies the means if you get people doing what you want them to do. I don't want people to do what I want them to do. I want them to do what God wants them to do. I want them to be in the presence of God and learn to hear him. What's sad is the problem still exists today. Now, I remember in Acts 17, when they came to Berea, the people there were more noble because they looked to see if it so, 
When someone speaks, we need to look to the scripture. We need to know the scripture well to see, does this line up with the scripture? Through the years, I've heard so many people speak that does not line up with the scripture. I see that person go to another church and I see that church grow and people are are chasing after what they call the for sure word of God. Let me tell you what you have. You have the for sure word of God. It is the Bible. From cover to cover, it's God's word. It shows us again the depravity of man, the need of God, the dependence upon God how we're to walk and live this life. Now, verse 22 reminds us the the importance of being faithful in our daily conduct. It says, abstain from every form of evil. When the testing is made, any aspect of evil must be rejected. It's kind of like when when you're watching TV. If, If all of a sudden you start seeing evil come on the screen. You start seeing things that you should not be watching. You need to turn it off. Even if everyone else does not want to watch it, you need to turn it off. You need to reject evil, every form of evil. So subtly we have accepted from the 60s until now things that were we knew were evil and, and there was a protection and little by little People begin to compromise, begin to accept things that were evil. And now look at the TV, look at the media, the words, the language, the suggestiveness of immorality. It's sad. The fact is that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Look at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved and complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. He also will bring it to pass. Now it's interesting when we see this word, the God of peace, the God of peace, the God of shalom. The God of shalom will make you completely whole. Notice that that thought again, that may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely or completely. See, that's what the, again, that word shalom, it's much more than you and I could imagine. Shalom literally means peace, yes. An ancient word, which is a greeting, it was used as hello and goodbye, as well as peace. But the, the word itself, it's complex in its meaning. It comes from a Hebrew word that really is meaning complete. Complete of what? Of peace, tranquility, a complete safety, complete well-being or welfare or health or contentment, complete comfort, complete wholeness and integrity. This God of peace will sanctify you. That's so important. He himself will sanctify you completely. He himself will finish the work in you one day. This is, this is the point. Now, while we're looking at shalom, peace, there's another word, shalom alechem. Literally means peace unto you. It would be a greeting, shalom alechem, peace unto you. 
But there's one more I want to share with you today, Shalom Bayet. It's often used with another word, for example, Shalom Bayet, which means peace in your home. Boy, that's something we need, peace in our home. If you're a husband or wife, is there peace in the home? The enemy, sometimes we let them get a foothold or maybe the kids bring it in. Maybe it's the shows we want to watch. Certainly on a a Sunday morning or when you're going to a Bible study, there's not always peace. The enemy is hammering away at a person's life. We need to look to the God of peace. And we need to bring peace to others. It should be our desire to pray for others that that peace would be to them. Shalom Aleichem. We need to pray for peace in our home. Shalom be it. Look again at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. See that idea that we're sanctified means set apart. It makes something different, distinct. Breaking off the old associations, forming a a new association. The idea is kind of like a a dress. A dress is a dress, but a wedding dress, it's sanctified. It's set apart for something special, a glorious purpose, a special time. But when you're being sanctified, you're being set apart to him, to God. You are the bride of Christ, set apart. Now, Paul made it clear that this sanctification, it's God's work. See, he puts the emphasis on the word himself in being preserved. In him who calls you is faithful, who will do it. See, God is that agent, that sanctifying agent. He will finish that work in you. And I'm so thankful Because imagine you're like me. At times we feel helpless. We know what goes in our mind. Oh, outwardly we may seem to have it together, but we are still sinners saved by grace. Now continue on with me in verse 23. And may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved and complete. Notice, without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's praying. God will finish the work in us at that coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk a lot more about that when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, but that coming here refers to, again, Jesus Christ coming for his church, who we've been set apart for. Verse 25, he writes, Brethren, pray for us. I love that. I speak to you, brethren, pray for me, pray for us. Because we need you. We need God. I need your prayers. You need my prayers. And God uses it. And we, while we don't understand completely how we use it, we just know. Verse 26, it says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. And here today, we, we, we still practice that same thing. But not all kisses are holy. We kiss someone on the cheek. We greet them. We love them. If they're from here, sometimes when people come to the mainland, they don't understand. In some places from the mainland, they do it just like we do. They take it seriously to greet a person 
in love. It's not just the holy kiss. We greet them with all we are. They were so happy to see another brother and brother or sister in the Lord. We greet them with that love. We greet them with the love of Jesus Christ. And he goes on, verse 27, I adjourn you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Or they didn't have iPads and phones and, and to read off. They were to share it with one another. And I think we're still to share the word with one another. Share the word with those. If God speaks to you some special thing, share that. I have people send me from all over the world encouraging words from God's scripture. And I love it. You know why? Because I know that God has put me on their heart. So important. Reminding me that Jesus Christ is going to come for us. He will finish the work in you and me. In fact, 28, it says, then the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, Dr. Harry Ironside shared many years ago when he was speaking to a large group at Moody Bible. And there were students that he was training to send out as ministers. And one of them asked him, Dr. Ironside, what would you do if you knew for sure that the Lord was coming back tonight? Quickly, Dr. Ironside said, I'd, I'd have something warm to drink in about an hour or so. And then I'd go to bed. The young man was shocked. So Dr. Ironside had a gentleman. I try to live every day in light of the hope of his coming. I would see no reason to change my usual routine. See, that's how we live our life. As if this is the last day, the last moment. We don't need to run and try and tell somebody the gospel uh, because maybe Lord's coming, he's coming right now, so I need to go tell him. We've already told him. We've already reached out and, and helped those that are in need, ministered to those. We spent time with the Lord. We're refreshed by the Lord. We have our assurance in the Lord. In these final exhortations, Paul simply reminds them to be faithful. Faithful in the Lord. See, that's what Dr. Ironside was. Faithful. One day at a time, the things that God put before him, the opportunities, the blessings, the good and the bad, he was ready to meet the Lord. I need to ask you the question. Are you ready to meet with the Lord? Or would you have to change your last routine because if you would have to change the last minute if you would have to run out the door you would have to share because you have not been living your life for christ and if that's the case you need to pause now you need to ask the lord for forgiveness you need to get back on that right path and keep your eyes on the author and finisher of faith Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that your mercies, your grace are new every morning. We thank you for this time. We thank you for each other. But most of all, we thank you for who you are. God, purify our thoughts. Purify our attitudes. 
make us a light in this place. Help us to redeem the time that we'd be ready for you when you come. In Jesus' name, amen.